0: Okie dokie. Well, a very warm welcome for everybody. It's great to have you here. You're all um, being very kind and coming and sitting in the front row and all that kind of thing. That's great. And um, we are going to uh, continue where we left off last time. You should all have a one-page handout. Those of you who are at home, I hope you've uh, managed to find in your inbox an email sent about half an hour ago with an attachment that... Uh, is a PDF. It's headed the Covenant Through Moses, Part 2. Um, through Moses, because it wasn't with Moses. Moses was the mediator of the covenant. He's the one who, through whom God made it with the people of Israel. little tiny detail that you might... Yeah, you knew that. Okay. All right, and um, I'm going to try and resist the temptation today to spend ages just recapping things. But I want to do a little bit of a recap, because always it's good to refresh our memory. And we've got also... One or two new faces here, and it's wonderful to have you with us. You're most welcome. And I know that there are occasionally new folks on the Zoom who get hold of the link illicitly, and um, I don't know how that happens, but it's great if it does. So, all right, let me lead us in prayer, and then we will just remind ourselves uh, where we've been, and we will step on the gas with a vengeance and try and and get through this entire handout. Not a chance, but we'll try. Um, Let's pray together, and this is what we get to. Merciful Father, thank you for your immense goodness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in reconciling us with you, and for his gift of the Spirit poured out from you, from him, from on high, by whom we're united with one another, and our eyes are open that we may perceive wonderful things in your word. And please help us tonight to perceive wonderful things in your law, the law given through Moses to your beloved people Israel many thousands of years ago, and help us as we do so to see the shape of history as you've been laying it out for us, so that we may live more faithfully and with the right hope and expectation in the present, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so that's um, half of that prayer as a reminder of what we're talking about. We're talking about eschatology, which is the Christian doctrine of history, not just the Christian understanding of what's going to happen in our future, but the Christian biblical understanding of what has been happening throughout the whole of the history of the created world. And the right way to understand our future is to begin by laying the foundation in our past. Don't worry about making a little bit of noise, children. You can just come in and grab your seats. And by the way, I've got your chairs, another lost property, those cool glasses right over there. Um, So we've been building up a picture of what God's been doing through history Beginning with the creation of all things, We're actually beginning with the character of God Himself, the creation of all things, Adam, Noah, Abraham, we got to Moses. And what we've been seeing is that the, the history of the world is the history of a series of unfolding chapters in God's relationship or covenant with humanity. The discipline of studying that is called covenant theology. The theology of God's covenants or relationships with his people. And what happens is, it's like a child growing up. You've all seen this before, right? Um, In the early days, God relates to his infant, Adam, and his toddler, Noah, and the youngster, Abraham, and the child, Moses, and the Israelites. And In one sense, it's the same relationship, but in another sense, it's a developing and changing relationship. But here's the crucial point. At every stage, we're learning lessons that are relevant to ourselves about how the relationship between God and his people, the church today in Christ, is supposed to operate. We will learn lessons from what God says they ought to do. We've seen a lot of that with Adam and Noah and Abraham, if you think about all the things that God said, this is how the relationship ought to work. What's really intriguing with Moses is you start to learn not just from what the people did that they should have done, that they were told to do, you learn from what they did wrong as well. And what I'm going to be walking you through today, we're kind of picking up um, just before the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. You remember where we would got to? We began with, really, with the book of Exodus last week, and we traced that, that history of God graciously redeeming his people, and I labored intently a couple of important points, like, for example, the fact that God's redeeming grace precedes his law, quote-unquote, we're going to come to that in a second, um, but the law was never given as a means for the people of God to be saved at any time ever in the history of humanity. God graciously redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. And he's about to give them the law as a, well, hmm, um, something that he gives to people he loves to show them how to live. But I want to say more about that in a second. Anyway, that's where we get to. And so just grab your Bibles and just open them up. And I want to sh- uh, begin, if, if I may, just where we left off last time, or close to where we left off last time, where the people of Israel. They're out of Egypt. Pharaoh and his army are drowned in the Red Sea. They've been wandering through the through the desert for a few weeks, been fed with manna from heaven and water from the rock. Jethro has told Moses he needs to sort himself out and stop trying to solve every problem and delegate things appropriately. And then, uh, chapter nineteen, we come to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to God in verse 3. And then the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that is to say, if you will be faithful to the relationship that you've inherited, so to speak, from Abraham. And the covenant is the kind of summed up in the ritual of circumcision and of worship in however way Abraham understood it. If you will be faithful to me, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. And I cannot tell you how important that little section is. It introduces the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, which really should be understood as, okay, this is how you're called to be faithful in the next chapter. It's a little bit like if you imagine a teenager who has been your child for 16 or 17 years, and now they've just taken their driving test and they passed first time. No autobiographical notes going on here. I didn't pass my driving test first time in England. I've taken three driving tests in my life. I must be an amazing driver. You know, pass my... T- no, anyway. But let's imagine you pass the test, okay? And you come home and you say, I passed, Dad. And you hold out your hand expectantly. Can I have the keys for the nice shiny truck on the drive or something? And what your dad's going to say is, of course you can. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> You might say, of course you can. But if you said, of course you can, then what you're going to do is you're going to say, OK, listen, I, I, I need just to lay down a few ground rules. Like, here's how it's going to work in the next chapter. You're growing up. Well done. And it's all been a gift of grace, hasn't it? I mean, it's not like you were so smart you figured out how to pass your driving test on your own. You were, you were helped every step of the way. You were coached through that reverse parking manoeuvre that you have to do without hitting the kerb. And now you've arrived, here you are, you've received this gift of God's grace. Here you are in the wilderness. Now, you you want to take the next step? And the people of Israel are like, yeah, of course we do. So Right, here's how you're going to do it. And there follows one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to read them all. But this raises for us a question which I want to tackle under the first heading this evening, because if we're not careful, we could proceed still with some misunderstandings about what is being said here. So I want to ask you the question, genuine question, and I want to hear some answers from you. What is, quote-unquote, the law? If I say to you, something, 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 um, the law of Moses, something, 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 the law of God, something, 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 the Old Testament law, law of Moses, law of God, Old Testament law. What kind of things pop into your head? Think for a second, and then hit me. Well, not literally, hit me. Um, Aaron, go ahead. You think Ten Commandments? Yeah, okay. What else? Law of God. What do you think? All of Leviticus, all that really cool stuff about what you're not allowed to touch and eat and everything, right? Yeah? What else? Yeah, this is, um, beg your pardon? A way, to God. A way to please God. Very good. Yeah. If I abstract slightly and say, law, right, what kind of images pop into your head? Yeah? Impossibility. Uh, impossibility. Like you're thinking of the IRS or something, right? There's so many regulations, you can't keep them. Right. Or you're thinking of something else, right? Well, just, um, <laughs> like, I think we were all taught that the law is, is there to point out that you can't do it. Yeah, the law is this exacting standard which cannot be kept. Is, is that familiar? That, the, the, these are wrong, okay? I'll tell you what the law is in a second. H- hands up if you've, if you've heard the law talked about in that way, which portrays it as this uh, these are the rules, and they're posted on the wall to show you how far from them you have fallen. There's a, uh, you're, at the back, you're nodding, yeah? Um, I want to read you a quotation, which is the worst paragraph in an otherwise really quite good book. And the, the book is by Palmer Robertson. It's called The Christ of the Covenants. And I've actually taught through this book multiple times before. It's an excellent book. But here's what he writes about the, the law that was given in the days of Moses. Okay, I can, I can just about do this without r- repeating on my breakfast here. I, I'll try. The distinctiveness of the Mosaic Covenant resides in this externalised summation of God's law. This stark, cold, externalised form in which the covenant stipulations appeared manifests eloquently a most distinctive characteristic of the Mosaic covenant. A law has been written, a will has been decreed, this law stands outside man demanding conformity. Law, as it is used in relation to the Mosaic covenant, denotes an externalised summation of God's will. stark cold externalized demanding conformity oh how i love your stark cold externalized decree <laughs> do you see the problem it's just isn't it strange and see the the difficulty is right there is there is just enough truth in this to do damage Because it is true that the scriptures and the Old Testament and the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Torah or the Law, um, in fact, sometimes the whole of the Old Testament is called the Torah or the Law, do contain rules like don't commit murder. That demands conformity, don't commit adultery, Um, don't steal. Um, don't plant two different kinds of seeds in the same field if you're Old Covenant Israelite living in the days of Moses, etc., etc., etc. There are laws, and they do demand conformity, and it's true that very often we fail. But can you see the problem with, well, I want to show you the problem with um, only thinking of law in this way to begin with? The actual word translated "law." Does anybody know what the word is in Hebrew? You probably do know some. Uh, yeah, the Hebrew word it means teaching, and the word is it's sometimes word in in the, in the Ten Commandments. They're actually called the Ten Words. There's nowhere in Scripture that the Ten Commandments are called the Ten Commandments. Your English translations might say that they're actually called the Ten Words. So very good. Um, beg your pardon? Torah, Torah. actually. Torah, because the accent comes on the tonic syllable at the end, right? Torah, you've heard the word Torah. It's one of those Hebrew words like shalom that we all know what it means, right? And what it actually means is teaching or instruction. And of course, fathers, mothers, your teaching or instruction to your children includes rules, correct? Like, yeah, you you can have the, the keys to the truck. Don't go smashing it into something else at 60 miles an hour when there's a 30-mile-an-hour speed limit. You know, there are rules written or implied, correct? But the way that law, Torah, ought to be understood is as far more than that. Just some statistics might interest you. Um, In the New Testament, um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, uh, Paul refers to the law. He says, in the law, it says, and then he promptly quotes from the book of Isaiah, And you think, well, that's a bit odd. It's it's kind of a mishmash of quotes from Deuteronomy and Isaiah and perhaps Jeremiah 5 as well. But the way that law is used by the New Testament writers, Jesus included, not that he wrote the New Testament, but but by the New Testament in general, includes legal prescriptions. But it also includes the whole of the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, because sometimes you get the phrase, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And there, the law means the first five books. The prophets is everything after that, including the, um, the books of uh, Samuel and Kings. And the writings is all the other stuff, like Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and stuff. So law, prophets, writings. Sometimes Jesus refers to just, just the law and the prophets. So the writings presumably get lumped into one or the other. And sometimes it's just the law referring to the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, just think what that means. When we hear the word law, as in law of Moses, we should be ready to think of a whole constellation of different ideas. We should be ready to think of rules, just the instructions. We should be ready to think of the era in which those instructions applied, that's how Galatians uses the word often Um, uh, you're not under law means you're not in the era when Moses, the covenant with Moses was sort of guiding God's people but we should also be ready to think of the whole of the contents of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy the books of Moses, the books that Moses mostly authored, or even the whole of the Old Testament itself, now have you any idea how much of the books of Moses, the first five books, are actually laws? You want to have a rough guess? Yeah, fifty. it kind of depends what you count as laws, but it's certainly less than half. And of that half, a good half of them are really not laws about personal conduct. They're about how to build the tabernacle and how to worship God and how to offer sacrifices. If you really, really focus down and try and work out how many chapters of the first five books of the Bible are actually about do not do this and do do that, personal instructions, it's certainly less than 50, probably less than 40. And that's if you include Deuteronomy, which is kind of repeating a bunch of stuff from Exodus and developing it. If you include the whole of the Old Testament, 900 and something, how is it, 900, I wrote it down, 929 chapters, we are talking about less than 5% of the Torah is actually laws in the sense of a bunch of instructions that you must do this and you must do that and you must not do this. You with me? Now, why is that so important? The reason this is important is because what the rest is all about, the rest of it is narrative. It's history describing what God has done to graciously bring you to the place you're now in. It's songs and poems celebrating what God has done to bring you to that point. And it's prophetic visions about what the future holds in the near term or in the longer term, and prophetic explanations of what God has been doing more recently. And then it's wisdom sayings, and, and aphorisms, and uh, things to wrestle with like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And the purpose of it is not to simply give you a rule book and say, look, you've got, you've got to do this. Okay, you're, you're now my people. Here's the rules. It's not really that. It's more like what the loving father is going to say to his daughter when she passes the driving test. It's like, you, I was so thrilled for you. And um, you know there's a, there's a bunch of things you need to be careful of now. But let me remind you of how you got to this point. And let's embrace, and it's not what you say when your daughter passes the driving test actually, this is a bit over the top. But what, what the Torah is doing for Israel is saying, the Lord wants you to embrace the history that he has brought you through, to recognize that you're part of that history, to learn from that history, to celebrate the good things that have been done in it, to imbibe the practical wisdom that your forefathers in the faith have enshrined within it. Oh, and to avoid making the massive, catastrophic, sinful errors that are sometimes spelled out in the form of laws. And when you do, and here's a crucial point that's often not not appreciated, when you do, the law itself will give you the instructions about how the Lord is going to make things right with you. When you start reading Exodus, and we're we're not going to read it now, you notice that there's one chapter of Ten Commandments, there's three chapters of case laws, like specific instructions, 21, 22, 23, the vast majority of the rest of the book is all instructions about how to build the tabernacle, which is the place you come to get right with God after you've sinned. And then it's, instruction, then it's a description of how they built it. And then the first thing that goes off in Leviticus is, here's how to conduct your worship services. Yet, yeah, like, of course it's true that we're going to sin in the sense of we're going to miss the mark. We're going to fall short of what God wants from us. But the law is not concerned with giving us a slap so we fall over and then kicking us when we're down. It's our gracious Father holding up to us the way to enjoy the relationship with him that we've been brought into. And look, here's here's how to fix things when when it goes wrong, and it will, but I want you to know how to fix it because I love you. Here's how to stay in communion, in relationship with me. That's what law is. Are you with me? So let me pause there. Would we'll scoop up any questions we've got. Yeah, Mrs. Clackhorn. Deuteronomy 30, 10 through 30. 10 through 14, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not like up in heaven, so you have to say, where is it? Yeah, it's, like, you just need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that's the summary of the law. The love your neighbor as yourself bit, by the way, is in Leviticus, I wasn't made up by Jesus. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So what I want to do is I just want to clear away this idea that law means, oh, Palmer Robertson, bless him. I mean, he's a very, very fine scholar. And I wonder, under, it's interesting, if you read the book really closely, he's got a couple of footnotes where he's clearly wrestling with the incongruity of this description of the law of Moses, given what the Psalms say about it. And it's a really, really revealing moment in the footnote. And I, you I, I, wrote it a number of years ago. I wonder whether he still thinks that. He's still alive. A very fine scholar. Mrs. Bennett. Oh, I was just thinking about how the Ten Commandments are so reviled and, and yeah. in our culture that uh, if, if we look at what they actually say, uh, they help us. Like we don't want people to murder us. Mm. We don't like to have things stolen from us, or, right. yeah, or said poorly about us. And it's interesting how, as a lump, they're just yes, like, yes. you and your God with your Ten Commandments, you know. Yeah, oh, but yeah, look what if we did them, and it is because God wants us to
1: enjoy yes.
0: and have food. Yes. life. Yeah, imagine, imagine we were the Israelites. Like there were, I don't know how many are we—sixty, maybe fifty of us tonight. You come out of of, of Egypt in the wilderness. And the Lord says, right, I love you guys and I brought you here to, to meet with you, to worship me. You know how to, to worship me now. Or well, you're about to discover because Leviticus. Um, now, look, here's the best way for your relationships to flourish. Don't steal stuff from each other. Don't kill. Now, when you get married, stay faithful to each other. Um, don't, don't covet somebody else's stuff. Work hard to get your own so that you can then give to other people and so on and so forth. Are you with me? It is a blueprint for a society that is functioning well. And it's interesting, we, we uh, did this in the 7th the and 8th grade theology class this last year and um, it's very interesting occasionally to look at what the Westminster divines say, Westminster 17th century mostly English reformed theologians expounding the Ten Commandments. So they're doing lots of other things, but they, they expound the Ten Commandments. And they're drawing out loads of implications from each one. So it's the deep reflection on the significance. So Jesus hints at this when he says, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say, don't even look at a woman lustfully. Because to do that, just will, it will make a mess of you and it's offensive to God and it will just distort all your relationships. And remember we are talking about this? So it's a, it's a gift. And this is actually how we to discipline children. Yeah? We're, we're trying to make their lives nicer and better and more enjoyable and more fruitful. Okay, so that's the law. Now, what I want to do um, is, you've got your hand-ups again, uh, look briefly at a text in Deuteronomy again, Deuteronomy 4, that highlights the purpose of the law in the life of Israel. Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8. We have looked at this before. But it was about three sessions ago, and I want to just look at it again. Now, you know what Deuteronomy is? Deuteronomy is Moses' um, last will and testament, really. Deuteros, second, nomos, law. The second reading of the teaching of the instruction. And the Israelites are camping in the hills of Moab, overlooking the, uh, the land of Canaan from the east side of the river Jordan waiting for Moses to die so that they can all go in and inherit the promised land in the book of Joshua. And so Moses, because he's a preacher, he's got to preach, so he preaches these sermons. And he's telling the people of Israel what's going to happen and what they ought to do in the land. Deuteronomy 4, C, verse 5. Behold, I think it says in some of your Bibles. I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord, my God, commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. This will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? That's the purpose of the law in a nutshell. If... You guys, when I'm dead, cross over into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. There he is. Um, The Lord will give you the land. Some of the inhabitants of the land might want to join you. Watch out for that lady, Rahab. Um, When you've taken possession of the land, if you live faithfully in this way, all the other nations around will realize this is the right way to live. And they'll come and they'll, they'll make inquiry about where you got these laws from, and they'll think, wow, it's amazing. Your God is so close to you that he dwells close to you. Tabernacle, later the temple. And he's got all these righteous laws that make it possible for human society to flourish. And the goal is, to coin a phrase that's slightly anachronistically, evangelistic. Israel had the potential to be at the very least, magnetic to the nations around them. It's not quite evangelistic in the sense that it's not the evangel, the gospel, in the sense of the preaching of the kingdom of Christ. And they weren't told they had to go out. It was that other nations would come to them and see the goodness of what the Lord had given them. And so now you can see how it connects to eschatology, right? Run the thought experiment. Just imagine that Israel hadn't been polluted with the sin and wickedness of Adam. So that, or at least not to the extent that they were unable to remain faithful to Torah, to the teaching. What's going to happen? Well, you get kings and queens and people from other nations hearing about the goodness of this community, which also had specific instructions that whenever you have certain feasts during the year, like the Feast of Booths, you have to invite the sojourners that are are with you. Look, it's in Deuteronomy 25 or Deuteronomy 23, I forget which, maybe both. You've you've got to go out into the streets and find a foreigner to invite to your Feast of Booths party. You definitely want to be travelling through Israel during the Feast of Booths because it will be wonderful you get invited to all these parties all the time as the people are celebrating the Lord's goodness to them. And what's going to happen over time, if you play that thought experiment out, is that the the nations around gradually get to hear and the word spreads and people come. They meet with Israel's king or they meet with the people of Israel and they're convicted that this is the right way to live and they worship God in some way and maybe it will be possible for them to worship him by coming periodically to the temple and taking the teaching that was relevant to them back to their own land, or something like that. Whatever it was that the Queen of Sheba did. yeah That's what should have happened. Well, what did happen was mostly a really sorry catalogue of failure, punctuated by brief moments of faithfulness, temporarily we've already talked in a previous session about king solomon and first kings 10 and the queen of sheba coming as an example of that but what i want to do for the rest of our time today is to well i've got one more point under the first heading but if you look at the bottom two-thirds of your handout so i want to talk about the law of moses in action and most of this is a story of failure with little glimmers of hope in it and we're actually going to learn lessons about eschatology from the failure, as well as from the successes, I'll show you what I mean by that. But just before we do it, just to make the connection explicit to the New Covenant Church, just turn with me to First Peter two. Let me show you one text. There are many texts, but one text that speaks about the place of the law. And can we all when, can we all agree whenever I say law, you know I'm talking about? the instruction of the Lord that encompasses that narrative of his goodness and the songs and the wisdom and everything, as well as the rules, yeah? And that way I get to say law and you don't think that I've gone weird by talking about Torah the whole time. Well, what's the place of the law in the life of the new covenant church? Well, just notice. First Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Well, hold on one second. Haven't we, haven't we seen that before somewhere? Where did we just see that bit of verse 9? Yeah, in Exodus 19. Right, the people of Israel get to the foot of Mount Sinai and God says, you're a holy people. If you keep my covenant, you'll be a royal priesthood. All the earth is mine, but you'll be a special community of people for me. And Peter grabs hold of that, and he's talking to a church in the wilderness of Western Turkey in the first century. And he says, a bunch of little tiny churches. And he says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. Can you see what's happened is the the promises made to Old Covenant Israel have been fulfilled in Christ and in all those who are in Christ. And so the things we're about to discover about what Old Covenant Israel did, they're going to have some relevance for us. When we discover what Israel should have done, you know, live in such a way that the people see your wisdom and goodness so they glorify God. That's kind of telling us a little bit about what this holy nation, the church, ought to do. And when we see their failure and what happens in consequence of it, we will be warned about the potential consequences of our failure should we rebel against God. This is why this what we're going to talk about the remaining forty-five minutes today is going to teach us about eschatology. You can tell it, it will teach us the cost of unfaithfulness, as well as the blessings of faithfulness. And notice how he carries on. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You remember, just because just like Israel, they'd received, they weren't really an independent people in Israel, in Egypt. God mercifully drew them out there and constituted them as an independent nation, his own people. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct against the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I can't think of many texts which more crisply summarize the practical responsibility we have for playing a role in God's eschatological project. Think about that for a second. God's project to move history forward, God's eschatological project, if you like. What are we supposed to do, beloved? I urge you. Sojourners and aliens, come to that in a second abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the, the Gentiles honourable. So everyone out there sees your good deeds and even though they might think you're a complete muppet, they in the end, maybe some of them will admit you're not and they'll glorify God on the day he visits us. Yeah? And some of you will know people who have become Christians because they met that young lady at college who was a Christian and they thought she was a bit weird to begin with but in the end they had to kind of admit that really she she's got something that I want and when I asked her she started talking about Jesus and that's how I became a Christian, you met people like that we have, Nicole and I have friends like that Um, I told you about one of my friends Andy Grice who's now a pastor in Cheltenham, England Um, that's how he became a Christian it wasn't really me he saw, I think it was my friend Clive Now, just a quick note on this. The sojourners and and exiles phrase. Some of you have got aliens and strangers. Um, This is sometimes read in a way that gives the impression that we are sojourners and aliens here in the world we don't really belong here heaven uh, earth is not my home i'm just a passing through on my way to a better place i can't remember how that lyric goes can somebody who knows that song fill it in for me you don't want to sing it for us you sure that it's it's actually quite a common misunderstanding of the bible's teaching as a whole and this passage in particular that we as the church we don't really belong here In the world, we're aliens and strangers. We're sojourners and exiles here. We really belong in heaven. One day we'll get whisked off to go to heaven. Few just in time because this ship is sinking. (coughs) Now, we are going to come back to this in future weeks. Let me just alert you to the fact that that is absolutely not true. And the phrase sojourners and exiles does not mean that. The phrase comes from Genesis 23, verse 4. Come back with me to Genesis 23. And this is another important eschatological lesson that we need to remember, because it, it informs us about what is going to happen in the world as the church gradually does the Second Peter, the First Peter two nine to twelve thing before the nations of the world. There's only one place in the Bible where the phrase "sojourners and aliens." or sojourners as an exile appears it's the same greek phrase in the greek translations of the old testament and it's here in genesis 23 verse 4 some of you I've talked to about this before and it's after the death of sarah when abraham is looking for somewhere to bury her and he says to the uh, the hittites in whose land he's living I am a sojourner and foreigner, sojourner and exile, same phrase, among you. Please give me property among you so I may bury my wife. And the Hittites say to Abraham, well, of course, yeah, you can have some land. And, and Abraham says, no, I, I, I want to pay for it. And they say, no, you can have it for nothing. And Abraham says, no, I insist, I'm going to pay for it. And so he pays for that land and, and he buries his wife. There in the land of the Hittites, where he is, quote, a sojourner and an exile. Now, here's a question where is he? The land that he will inherit. Right, very good. You, you either got a good memory or you figured that out very fast. Well done. He's in the land that the Lord has promised he will one day inherit. This land is not mine yet, so I'm going to pay for it. But one day it will be. This is the land of Canaan, where the Hittites live. So that phrase, sojourner and exile, or alien and stranger, does not mean I'm just a passing through on my way somewhere else. What it means is, one day, the Lord has promised, this will be ours. So I urge you as sojourners and exiles... live such good lives among the Gentiles that they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Sojourners and exiles, because as Paul comments in Romans 4, when he's, he's half quoting Abraham, the promise that Abraham would inherit the land. In Romans 4, he says um, that God gave Abraham the promise that he would inherit the world, not the land, the world. The, the extent of the promises expanded. What Peter anticipates here is that one day the church will take dominion over this land. You're an alien and a stranger. Right now it's, in, it's under darkness but the light is dawning, the gospel is spreading, the kingdom is growing. You're seeing a little glimpse of eschatology, of our future right here in the fact that Peter uses exactly that phrase. So just pause one second and let's scoop together what we've talked about so far faithful reception of and life in the light of the Torah, God's instruction, will be, Israel, the way in which you draw people from many nations, and indeed many nations themselves, to the Lord, if only you'll be faithful to him. And that faithfulness is not impossible The law is not this impossible standard you can't keep. It's got built into it the fixes for when you break it, the sacrificial regulations, because the Lord wants to keep you in covenant with him. The only thing that's going to break it is if you walk away from those structures of worship through which you're reconciled with God. That would break the covenant. Just remember that for a second. And if you do that, one day all this will be yours. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're seeing, if you like, anticipated in Deuteronomy 4, in the giving of the law in Exodus 19. We're learning lessons for our future from that. You with me? So now in a second, we're going to jump into Joshua extremely briefly, then Judges, and then a bit of Ruth, which will take us Through several hundred years of mostly failure, as the people of Israel didn't live faithfully according to the word of the Lord. Let me pause one second because you might have some questions. Any comments or thoughts at this point? Yeah, Hannah? This is something to do with Joshua 13. Mm hmm. Joshua 13. Yes, that's very good. So in Joshua 13, you think that the conquest is sort of done, but God says, no, no, there's still loads of land to be taken, and it turns out that there is. And you're seeing a couple of things there. Firstly, and actually this is helpful, Hannah, because it takes us into the the first little bullet point of the law of Moses in action. In the book of Joshua, you all know this, at least if you listen to my sermons on Joshua, most of you do, I don't know whether we got a couple of visitors, maybe you weren't, but the book of Joshua tells the uh, history of the first generation after the people of Israel entered the promised land. And basically, they, they went through and conquered the land the Lord had given them, displaced the inhabitants as an, act of, as an act of judgment against them in the name of the Lord. Those inhabitants that were ready to repent did and joined the people of Israel. And those that did not uh, experienced the judgment of God justly and righteously. And here you're kind of mid flow, and the Lord says, Not finished yet, Joshi, come on. We've got more land to be taken. And it's at the end of the book that Joshua is like, I think we're done here. Mm, he thought he was done here. We're going to see in a second he wasn't. But what's happening is the... Is, remember the, um, the promise to Abraham? What were the three elements of the promise to Abraham? Land people, Land, people, blessing. Yeah. So people, you pretty much got the people by the beginning of the book of Exodus. You know, Many, many people in Egypt. Um, blessing... The the Torah, which includes the blessing of God's presence with his people and access to him in worship through the tabernacle. But where's the land? Well, the land is finally conquered in the book of Joshua. So the first six books all hang together. So what happens next? Well, I invite you to turn with me to one of my favorite books in the whole Bible, the book of Judges. Now, that's not a phrase you hear very often. One of my favorite books in the whole Bible, comma, the book of Judges. Well, it's one of mine. Um, in fact, I love Judges chapter three, verse thirty-one, which we probably will. We look at maybe we'll look at today. I love it so much that I have a fridge magnet with Judges three thirty-one in Serbian on my fridge at home. It's true, and I guarantee I must be the only person in the entire history of the world who's ever had one of those. Isn't that cool? Ask me about it afterwards. So, what happens in the book of Judges? Well, remember what we're seeing is we're seeing the unfolding of eschatology, the unfolding of history. Judges 1 verse 1, after the death of Joshua. So it's now the next generation, generation 2 in the land. They've been there, I don't know, probably, I mean, is it 56 years? Something like 50 odd years, Joshua has died. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And it turned because it seems that there's still some work to be done. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you in the ter- into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Now, this looks like the continuation of, of the positive conquest of the land of Canaan in the next generation. And indeed it is. In fact, there's some real subtlety here because um, you notice there's a bunch of things that they do really well. What do they do really well? What's the first thing they do after the death of of Joshua? Chapter 1, verse 1. Yeah. Let's pray, everybody. (laughs) Well, that's a good idea. And the Lord answered, we don't know how, um, perhaps through some prophetic utterance given to a prophet in their midst, we don't know. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up, I've given the land into his hand. And so Judah went off on his own. No, he didn't. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me. Now, this is a long and messed up story. And I, again, I've told some of you this before, I think. Have I told you, hands up if I've told you the story of Judah and Simeon. Here's some of you. Yeah, my kids are so sick of hearing this one. Okay, briefly, what happens? You remember Numbers chapter 25? Don't look at your Bibles. What happens in Numbers 25? Something terrible happens in Numbers 25. The because of the no, no, that's, that's another terrible thing. Numbers 25 is when the, the men of Israel um, went and committed idolatry with the women of Moab and adultery with them. And it's the, it's the great crisis in the wilderness. I mean, that's, there were a bunch of crises before that, complaining about Moses. But this really looks like the end for the people of Israel because they're starting to die out in the wilderness because the Lord has sent this plague among them. And everyone's kind of gathered around. You've got to go and read it in Numbers 25, but don't look at it now. Um, all the people are gathered around pleading with God to take this plague away from them, big prayer meeting around the tent of meeting. And as they're doing so, there's this guy who comes... Um, into his tent with his new Moabite girlfriend and everyone's like "What?" And so Phineas goes and gets a spear and follows him in, into the tent and one spear, two people it's like I said it's a really brutal and horrible chapter and at that point the plague is stopped very interesting so what's, what's Phineas just done? Presumably, he has just slain the ringleader of this idolatrous and adulterous episode when the people of Israel were uh, turning away from the Lord in the wilderness. Now, I bet you, you all want to know who the guy was, right? Who's the guy who, while the whole of the people of Israel are, are praying for God to relieve them from uh, the plague, this is one guy who brings his girlfriend into the camp, Mrs. Clackhorn's. Yeah, his name is given. He is Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house, belonging to the Simeonites. And then you look carefully at the book of Numbers. and In the book of Numbers, you've got two censuses, one at the beginning and one kind of towards the end. And the numbers, most of the numbers, they start quite high and get a little bit higher. With one exception, the tribe of Simeon starts quite high and is decimated. It goes from like 59,000 and something to 22,000. And you know why? It's because all the people who died were Simeonites. And so now picture the scene a few decades later when you're in the land. You've got to go and fight for your inheritance. And all your men, or most of your men, are dead because they went and committed adultery with Moabite women 20 years ago. What are you going to do? How are you gonna? How are you gonna get your inheritance? Well, Judges chapter one, verse three. Just go back there and see it. Judah said to Simeon his brother, "Tell you what? Why don't you come with me, and you can fight with me, and then I'll fight for your inheritance as well." And if you look at maps of the inheritances later in uh, in Israel's history you see the tribe of Simeon is entirely enclosed within the tribe of Judah and in fact by about 200 years after this it's completely merged the, 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 the Simeonites didn't have any distinct land at all they're entirely surrounded by Judah and you see what's happened is that Judah has realized here is somebody who is he's my brother he's a believer but he has made such a This whole community have made such a mess of their lives that there's no way they're going to be able to enjoy the inheritance that the Lord has given to us. They're going to need help. And just occasionally, you actually find people like that. You find people who are a bit like individual versions of the tribe of Simeon. They become Christians, but their past is a complete train wreck. And You know, they've got three kids. Don't know which the father is of any of them. Um, They've got no money. um, And their last boyfriend, friend, well, you can still see the bruises from just before he left, mercifully. And now she's just become a Christian. How's she going to enjoy the blessings of being a member of the people of God? Well, the only way is if some community of Judahites steps in to help her out. Correct? And that's what the people of God are called to do. If, if you want eschatology to progress in the direction that it ought to go, if you want the, the kingdom to grow, you need to be ready to pick up the um, smashed remains of Simeonites so that they can enjoy their inheritance. Rather than just leaving, to fend, leaving them to fend for themselves and yeah, you know what's going to happen then. So the people of Judah did exactly the right thing by helping their weaker brothers. So I always love this moment when you start to realise, okay, so if you you knew nothing else about the whole of the rest of the Bible and somebody said, which tribe do you think the Messiah is going to come from? It's obvious, right? He's going to be a Judahite. Because that's the kind of guy that Jesus was. He didn't come to try and find all the spiritually healthy people and build them into a sort of task force for mission. He went and found prostitutes and tax collectors because he's that kind of a savior. So we've got to be that kind of a church. If we want to see the kingdom grow, we've been seeing this community grow. Um, How long do you think it will be before one of those guys who, like the guy who did, um, Mr. Robinson introduced me to a, a gentleman this last Sunday morning who's coming asking for money and obviously we're not going to give a guy money. But I said, we'll help you. Um, it Sounds like you might need a bit more help than money. I can give you some vouchers for food. Uh, if you would like, you know who we are. You can come back and you can ask us for help and, and we will try and help you if, you if you want genuine help to try and get yourself back on your feet. How, many, how long do you think it's going to be until somebody actually says yes? I can't, <laughs> I can't call people's bluff. If he comes back tomorrow morning and says, you know, Pastor... Um, I was lying about the rent thing. I wanted money, but really I just need help. And did you say there are some people here who could help me? I'm going to say yes. On the assumption that we're going to be like the tribe of Judah, correct? Is that, can I do that? Excellent. That's what I'm going to do. And it's not, we've got a pastor for administration. Phew. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, well, who's going to help, who's going to help this guy out? He hasn't got a suit of clothes, hasn't got a toothbrush. and we tell him to go and get a job, come on. We need to help him to get back on his feet. All right. So, and it goes kind of well. There are good parts of the um, uh, the first chapter of Judges. um, Verses 8 through 15, it goes quite well. But there are mixed in with it, and then increasingly towards the end of chapter 1, basically the conquest grinds to a halt, and the land is not fully taken. In Judges chapter 1, it becomes apparent that even during the days of Joshua, and certainly in the generation afterwards, the people of Israel never really occupied the whole of the land. And if you, I'm not going to read through it all, but it, it's, um, for example, you can see um, verse 31... Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahlab or of Ahzib or of Helbar or of Athik, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Who's the inhabitants of the land? Not, Not the Asherites, the Canaanites. So something's gone wrong. And Judges chapter one narrates the really quite a long period of time. It might be several generations that are kind of being summarized there. And and it leaves you with this question, okay, why did the conquest fail? And there are two reasons. And they're both given in the next chapter. Now, this is where we start learning lessons from what the people of Israel did wrong. The Judah and Simeon thing, that's good. We do that. We can expect God graciously to continue to bring us growth and fruitfulness as a community here. But Judges chapter 2 will tell us two things which are death to any Christian community. I'm going to read Judges 2, verses 1 to 10. And I want you to tell me, what, what are the two things that they didn't get right? There's one per paragraph, okay, so it's not too difficult. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim, which means crying or weeping, or maybe weepers. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel. The people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Well, a bit late for that, isn't it? So, okay, I'll stop there. What's the first thing that they did wrong in that paragraph? They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Yeah, they didn't obey the voice of the Lord, and specifically, what, what sin did they commit? They didn't take down the altars. Down the altars. Can you see? I said, I'll never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land but break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What you've done is you've made some kind of covenant and in the context it must be a religious commitment with the people of the land because you're not broken down their altars. Some kind of idolatrous worship. And then, and this is chilling, what's the thing that the Lord says? He asks them a question immediately after that. What is this you have done? Where have you heard that before? Yeah, Genesis 3. Yeah, thorns and a few tears as well. Um, When God confronts uh, Adam and Eve after the fall, he says, what is this you have done? This is not just any old sin. This is a catastrophe. This is a replay of the fall. And what it actually is, is idolatrous. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, remember what the law contains. Okay, the Torah contains inbuilt mechanisms for putting our relationship with God right when we make a mess of things. Yeah? It's loads and loads and loads of stuff about how to build the sanctuary and how to worship there so that when we sin, which we will, the law is like our relationship with God is self-healing. We know from the law that we've sinned and we know from the law how we can put things right with the Lord and the way you put things right with the Lord is going to the sanctuary where he is worshipped and offering the sacrifices that he's prescribed through the priests that have been ordained in his name. If you go and worship Baal or some other god you have that's a different kind of sin at that point you're walking away from the means of reconciliation that the Lord has put in place that's breaking covenant that's breaking the relationship can you see there's a distinction between those two kinds of sin there are sins that can be fixed you steal something you get caught or even if you don't get caught you should confess but I steal Pastor Shaw's car his truck I got truck envy you see I'll steal it and I'll put different fenders on and spray it blue so you'll never know (laughs) So I've then got to give you your truck back and then compensate you up to probably it will be four times the value of the truck. <laughs> right? Well, what can I do then? How do I get my relationship with the Lord sorted out? Well, I can go and offer the appropriate sacrifice and then we're all good and Pastor Shaw's got his truck back and some compensation and I've, I'm forgiven. But if I'm not even willing to go and seek forgiveness from the Lord... That's a different category of sin. Can you see that? That's a sin that breaks covenant because it's broken the relationship permanently. That's the first thing the people of Israel did. They, they learned religion from Canaanites. In fact, the book of Judges can be summarized in this way. What's supposed to happen is the land is filled with the fragrance of the worship of the Lord, the people of Israel carry the worship of the Lord into the land of Canaan. In fact, what happens, it's the other way around. The people of Israel go into the land of Canaan, but the fragrance of Baal worship, mostly Baal and Asherah worship, false gods and idols in Canaan, the direction goes the other way. The religious and moral influence comes the other way. That's the first sin. If we don't keep coming back to the Lord Jesus Christ and seeking forgiveness, renewing covenant with him, it's over. Like, the Lord, God is an expert in forgiving sin. Whatever it is you've done, just return to him and he's gracious and he'll forgive you. But if you won't return and seek the forgiveness that he's offering, okay, that's different. You with me? That's the first thing. Second, you might ask, um, how could they have got into this mess? Like, what? how could they have been so stupid? <laughs> I mean, really? And in order to answer that question, the next five verses take us back in time to before the death of Joshua. And you've got a brief retrospective which explains why was this second generation so stupid as to turn away from the Lord and the means of atonement He provided, and you know it's a flashback because verse six, when Joshua dismissed the people, yeah. Well, Joshua's dead in chapter one, verse one, but this is when Joshua's still alive, so it's a flashback. Yeah, it's like those movies, like uh, Memento and Pulp Fiction, They're all the scenes are jumbled up. You know? Okay, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who'd outlived Joshua, who'd seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Honky dory, no problem. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What happened? They didn't teach their kids. Can you see how that would have led to the first problem? That first generation never passed on to their children the convictions that they themselves had. They served the Lord faithfully, but this next generation, and notice it's very specific, they didn't know the Lord... All the work that he had done for Israel. Very precisely phrased. Know the Lord is like relational intimacy. Um, It's not so much about um, just knowledge. There's there's knowledge in the second portion. Knowing the Lord is the kind of relational intimacy that you'd have in worship. They didn't take their kids to church. Well, they took him to church and dumped him in Sunday school and paint pictures and sit on beanbags with crayons. Grr. <clears throat> yeah? <sighs> they didn't know the Lord, and they didn't know what he'd done for Israel. It's interesting. It doesn't say they didn't know the law, didn't know the Ten Commandments, although it's very good if you do know the Ten Commandments. <laughs> but he, they didn't know what he'd done for Israel. They didn't know the the history of his redeeming grace. They didn't know that the Lord is the God who brought us out of Egypt, and they didn't know the accounts of the Red Sea and the plagues and the manna in the wilderness and how our forefathers grumbled, so don't be like them, and how the Lord gave us this land and how the Lord is the one who is to be worshipped. They didn't know that stuff, and they didn't know the Lord relationally themselves. So this, this this is how every church goes sideways if it does there's a generation of enthusiastic uh, passionately committed we love reformed theology and we're going we're to plant a church in Fort Worth and it's going to be great and it's great and then another generation after them grows up that doesn't know the Lord and they don't know what he's done for Israel that's how churches go sideways so can you see the practic- practical lessons that we learn from this? This is teaching us how to, so to speak, do or live eschatology, right? We need to be those who are always committed to return to the Lord. And he will forgive and he will pardon. And we have to be reconciled with each other and reconciled with God. And we just keep on doing that. The law isn't, what's is it, Mrs. Clackhorn's quotation from Deuteronomy, it's not so far, it's not difficult. Of course you're going to mess up. Yeah, but how difficult is it to get on your knees and confess your sins? Well, too difficult for some people, regrettably. And that's the problem. And our children need to hear this as well. And we need to find a way for you young people that you don't end up presuming upon what your parents have Worked for, if you sort of mean. Um, what can what can sometimes happen is a more subtle form of this, where you can sort of take for granted a pattern of life that you've not really internalized. And my prayer for you is that, like you, you grow up more passionately committed and more knowledgeable of the Lord and His ways than your mum and dad. Not that you sort of grab their coattails and then when you leave home you sort of let go and then think oh I should probably find a church at some point but I definitely need to find a job first and a house and maybe I think about going to college and going four year subsidised party and um, you know and then five years later it's like I probably should go to church at some point yeah no can you see see the danger Um, so from Israel's mistakes we learn a huge amount just right there. Now, how are we doing for time. Let me pause there because we could skitter through the rest of these. There's a sampling of the judges there, and we could look at the book of Ruth. But I don't want to leave questions hanging. So, any questions or comments at this stage? All right. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you in five minutes. I'm going to give you an overview of the whole of the book of Judges and the whole of the book of Ruth. How's that? <laughs> don't laugh. Of course, it's possible. Um, the bulk of the book of judges consists of a series of episodes 12 in total which follow roughly the same pattern and what happens is typified by the first example in that pattern in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. It's sometimes called the cycle of the judges. And what happens is something a little bit like this. If I go over here, am I still on the screen? And they can kind of hear. So the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, chapter 3, verse 7. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They're just two false gods, okay? Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. The anger of the Lord is kindled against them. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathayim eight years. So the anger of the Lord, which led to divine judgment. That's stage two. And the people of Israel, sorry, but, but sorry, verse nine, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Uh, Othniel was the first of the so-called judges. and Not judges in the sense of modern judges like with... Funny wigs and sitting in courtrooms. Uh, it's deliverer is actually a better term for it. They're um, often warrior leaders who would rescue the people of Israel or lead a military uh, response on behalf of the people of Israel to deliver them from their enemies. And then the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He, he judged Israel. He went out to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishaphaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. You see, so his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishaphaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. So that cycle is the cycle of Othniel. Now that forms a kind of paradigm for all the rest of the the remaining 11 cycles of the Judges. And as you probably guessed, what tends to happen after a period of time, the land has rest for 40 years. Is that again? And it is this dispute depressing downward spiral. Verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and so on and so forth. And so this cycle, sin, judgment, cried out to God, judge, rest, repeats a total, repeats 11 times, 12 times altogether. That's the story of the book of Judges. And what you're seeing is a bunch of lessons. You're seeing the repeated stupidity and myopic sinfulness of the people of God and the astonishing mercy of God And what happens is the character of the judge and the the character of the sin and the character of their crying out to God and and how the form of the judgment takes, but particularly the character of the judge, different episodes happen differently because the judge does different things. Ehud stands out from the rest of the people as... Like Everyone else is just sending tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, but he's bringing something else. He's got his sword sort of discreetly hidden. Shamgar is probably not an Israelite at all. There, Israel is saved by an outsider. Barak is completely useless, and so Deborah has to sort of step in and do the work for him. Um, Gideon exemplifies the Lord's grace through weakness you know you remember the thing with the army and down by the river and lapping up the water and it's like your army's too big you just slim down a little bit then it was 300 men and they defeat the mighty army of the midianites but then he becomes arrogant and proud and appoints his son as a king you know Gideon who does it because he calls him Abimelech and Abimelech means my father is the king so he's he's appointing his son or he's encouraging his son to to uh, step up as a hereditary ruler and Abimelech becomes a tyrant and so then you've got Lessons about how power corrupts those who have it. And that takes you all the way through to chapter 16. And then chapters 17 through 21 describe the moral and religious chaos which is under the surface. Is, those are, Judges 19 is about the most ugly and painful to read chapter in the Bible. So that tells you how bad a society can get by this repeated rebellion against God, at the same time as showing us the Lord's grace. And when we think back, if I think back to a country I know better, England, think of how many generations in the past, churches have been blessed wonderfully with growth and stability and then have turned away from the Lord or drifted from him. Happened in the 18th century, happened in the 19th century, happened in the early 20th century, It certainly happened in the mid-20th century. It's kind of happening again now. And again and again and again, the Lord seems to be gracious and revives dying communities. And so the book of Judges is frustrating, but at the same time, it is filled with hope if only we could get out of this depressing cycle. And how do we get out of the depressing cycle? The answer is, well, what's the last verse in the book of Judges? 2125. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is set out as the problem which can't be solved. Uh, and there's a long and complex chronology regarding why it can't be solved. Um, and it's also obvious that all the experiments in kingship in the book of Judges, like with Abimelech, they don't work. So What we're really looking for is the right kind of king. The king who could knock Israel into shape and put them back on the right track again. That'd be awesome. And so you turn over the page at the end of the book of Judges to Ruth chapter one. And this, I said that Judges is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I think Ruth probably is my favorite. If If I had to pick one, it might be this. In the days when the judges ruled, it's set in the days of the judges. And what it tells is the story of really one woman and one man who in different ways embody the heart of the law of God. Um, The first thing that comes out of Boaz's mouth in chapter 2 is, the Lord be with you. Ruth herself in chapter 1 makes a fairly sort of stalwart profession of faith in the Lord and you, you know the story, she's a Moabite and um, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, Marlon and, and they have gone to Moab and then the men all die and so the girls come back but only one of the daughters-in-law has to come, that's Ruth. So she comes back with Naomi and Naomi's really grumpy and Ruth is really kind and gracious to her. So, but, but Boaz is set out as this kind of archetypal faithful Israelite, faithful to the law. The Lord be with you. And Ruth kind of exploits his faithfulness to the laws concerning gleaning, which are designed to provide for the poor. That's how Ruth manages to get enough grain together that she can feed her grumpy mother-in-law. So Boaz keeps the gleaning laws. Ruth is able to benefit from them. And Boaz goes above and beyond. You know, like he fills her kind of shawl with more grain than she can carry and you get, at the end of chapter two, she gets home and Nomi says, okay, who's the guy who took care of you? Because there must be some man involved here. There's no way you gleaned and got like a whole sack of barley. That's not possible. And then in chapter three, um, uh, Nomi dresses her up basically in a wedding dress and says, go and find the guys when they're finished drinking after they're celebrating the end of the harvest and basically ask Boaz to marry you. And the reason that's possible is because of another set of laws which require um, a man to marry the widow of a relative. And it turns out that Boaz is a relative of Ruth, albeit a somewhat distant relative. And so there's another bit of law there that Boaz is prepared to obey, even at some considerable personal cost. But then chapter 4, you've got another guy who's a closer relative, so he's got the right to um, marry Ruth if he wants to, which would be terrible because probably most men in Israel are awful at this time because chapter 1, verse 1, the days of the judges... And so Boaz has to be really shrewd in the way that he um, works the legal case in the first six or seven verses. And you read that and you realize he's a really smart guy. He, he manages to maneuver the legal proceedings so that this guy relinquishes his claim on Ruth in marriage so that Boaz can marry him. So it's the shrewdness of somebody who's read Proverbs, or not read Proverbs yet, but is filled with the spirit of wisdom that you need to navigate the law in a um, crooked and perverse society. So, um, and then they have a child, they get married, yada, yada, and you get this genealogy at the end which narrates the ten generations from Perez all the way down to, in the very last word of the book, is David. So Judges ends with, we've got a problem because we've got no king. Ruth shows you that if you can just find one old man and one faithful foreigner who doesn't even speak the language, who will keep the law, God will give you a king. So the book of Ruth is why I love the book so much, apart from its depth and its detail. It is, let me put it this way. How many Boazes and Ruth's do you think there are whose names we don't know? Just quiet, unsung, but heroic faithfulness on account of whom God has been wonderfully kind to his people. And we actually, some of the stories become well-known so that we do know the names of those people. But it's, it's weird that in the days of the judges, you've got all these warriors and rulers and soldiers and everything else, and God saves the world with this Moabite woman and this old guy who owns a farm who will just keep the gleaning laws. So that's a lesson, right, for how we are to think about our faithfulness now. Don't expect God to do things only through the spectacular. Just quiet, careful faithfulness, and the Lord will keep his promises. All right, I think we got to the end of the handout. How cool is that? We did shoot over time, for which I... Oh, goodness, a few minutes over time. Um, My thanks to you for your patience Uh, Those of you who are at home, uh, thank you for joining us. Let me pray so you can go if you need to. And if you want to hang out here and chat, you can do that also. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we are thankful to you for these lessons about how you work in history to bring about the fulfillment of your purposes. Please teach us, we pray, to be uh, faithful to the spirit of your Torah, your good and perfect law, in the spirit of Ruth and Boaz, keeping faithful to those details and confident that in your kindness you will do good things through the faithfulness that you both require and enable by your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.